Hey everyone, this is Mark. I am back from Israel. It was wonderful, but I do have to say that I had an Airbnb experience that gave me a lot to swear about. Uh, be, be aware that there may be obscenities directed at a certain uh, high-flying international Tel Aviv Airbnb-owning man of mystery. Speaking of singing, Come I have on. to give a shout out tunes. to Come our on. our in-house ukulele player, Noam Osband. Yeah, let's shout that out right now. On the front page of Reddit, someone filmed him riding across, was it was the Brooklyn Bridge, on New Year's Day when it was covered in tourists, and he's trying to get through the bike lane. He's on his bike, and he's singing, Bike lane, you're in the bike lane, walk in the bike lane, Hello, weak, trembling diaspora Jews. This is Unorthodox, deeply golden brown, back from my time in the promised land. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie. Joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. He doesn't even remember my name. He yes. goes for one week. He, he forgets it. Hello. Welcome home. Joined as ever by you and that guy. the other guy. The girl and the guy. And senior writer Jobik Liel Leibowitz. I was told to call you a Jobik. That's a Jobnik. Jobnik. A Jobik is a Hungarian anti-Semite. Oh, but that's <laughs> nice try. I was wondering why I recognized that word. There was a guy at the Tel Aviv meetup who was like, tell Liel he's just a Jobnik. because what does that he, mean? he didn't. It means he was a bureaucrat in the army, not someone who shot people. Well, it could be both. It could be both. Yeah. Were you both? I was a little bit of both. You were a little bit of both. Our Jew of the Week is Ukrainian Jewish American writer Sana Krasikov. And our Gentile of the Week is political strategist Patrick Ruffini. Jews... Can I go first about what's up? Shalom. Can we Shalom. stop you? <laughs> Baruch haba America. Mashlamcha. Mashlamcha. Isn't that feminine? No. Oh. Yeah. What's mashlamech? That's feminine. Oh, oops. Okay. It's been, it's been a tight I was, week. I was going it? all around Israel <laughs> saying the wrong thing to people. That is so embarrassing. Anyway, I'm back from Israel with Rebecca and my parents. The highlight was getting a phone call from you guys while I was splashing about in the surf in Tel Aviv. You really were splashing. Were. I really was splashing. I was like, <laughs> if there's an ocean, I go in it. Um, and it was um, okay. I'll give you some highlights. Uh, Liel's itinerary. I ba- we basically followed the itinerary. Let's do this out. in a structured way. Is that like way. following in the steps of Jesus? That's right? exactly right. In the steps of another delusional Jew <laughs> with grand thoughts. Uh, worst meal you've had in Israel? Yes. Um, What's up with Israeli breakfast? Why do they feed you as if you're not going to eat again all day? Because they're sensible people, and you may die in the afternoon. So, also, the Holocaust? It, yeah. <laughs> so, what happens if you so, walk up in the morning, I mean, had a light breakfast, and then were shot right. by Hezbollah? Like, so, wouldn't you feel stupid? It was ably made, but like we sort of left a little bit embarrassed that we'd order so, ordered so much food, ashamed that we'd left so much on our plate. Like if we were real... You know, that's right. Real men and women, we would have eaten. That's it, right. It was the breakfast that kicked our asses, basically. You're the, um, the weak diaspora Jew. Weak diaspora Jew who like needs the stomach to sell. Filled yeah. by cottage cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and <It's> scrambled <laughs> eggs. And salad. So, um, and bread. I don't know what I mean. And yogurt. Do you have more questions you want to hit me with? You seem to have Does a list Rebecca, of them. Has Rebecca like flourished in her young Zionism? Rebecca's Zionism is, is I was so amazed by her. She like assimilated. She asked thoughtful questions about the problems with Israel and like why are there – What do you mean? What is problem? There are no problems. No problem with the country. I they don't teach you problems until after your bar mitzvah. And checkpoints and, you know, why do those Arab villages look so poor and and yet totally – Because they choose to and checkpoints because they try to kill us. Any other questions? Hold on. I'm going to pinch him. There we go. There we go. 
Things have gotten no. You're only supposed to pinch me if I say that Judaism is a religion. Is a religion? Right? I'm actually just going to pinch you based on anything anyone writes in complaining about. Oh my god, it's going to be very painful. Out, but but she was really um, no. She loved the country, and you know what's what was amazing about her is that she has this kind of curiosity about and love for like all Jews. You know, she'd see like guys in like beaver strimals with like weird like robes that you don't get in America, like small Hasidic sects with like weird jacquard houndstooth satiny robes in the tunnels under the Western wall. And like, she'd be like, that's cool. Who are they? You know, she's like, doesn't think of any Jew as alien. She hasn't been spoiled (laughs) by Jewish communal life yet. (laughs) Right. What's funny is then I get to Tel Aviv and meet people at the meetup who are like, yeah, Jerusalem's just like a Disneyland version of Judaism. Those Jews are just weirdo, not real Jews. It's like Like, literal Holy Land experience. Yeah, like like the the, the cynicism of Tel Aviv Jews toward those people whom Rebecca thinks are interesting – cousins of hers was so profound. So you were skeptical of Liel's argument about like the Jerusalem Tel Aviv divide. Do you understand it now? Yeah, like Jerusalem doesn't think Tel Aviv exists and Tel Aviv people have this hostility toward Jerusalem because Jerusalem's breeding them into oblivion. So I, I it was yeah, what else can I tell? I mean it was a great trip. I mean the, the low the low point was not a meal but the Airbnb in Tel Aviv which had no hot water for two of the three days we were there. And we had the, the owner was this like international high-flying man of mystery who lived in New York but is German who has this friend in Tel Aviv who handles the Airbnb for him and it's unclear what their relationship is. It seemed to be run by a, a cabal of international single financier men. We'll just leave it at that. And, Ladies. And basically the hot water went out and he texted me. He's like, well, you forgot to flip some switch. And I was like, oh, I, oh, I forgot. Yeah, the dude. Yeah. Do you know about the dude? Who's the dude? Well, that's what you do in Israel. All hot water. <laughs> It, you flip the switch and the the sun receptor boiler yeah. hot water thingy um, comes on and it's for a very limited time. Okay. This so, is a big thing. So the solar water, the solar heated water, solar water. ran out in like 20 minutes because right. there are four of it. And then he's like, but then there's a boiler and you forgot to flip that switch. That's right. Then we flipped that switch. We had unbelievably scalding, like melt Yay. your skin off hot That's water right. for an hour. That's then right. it went completely. And we couldn't control it. We couldn't modulate it. So we had to like duck in and out of the shower. Then it went off and we had no hot water again for a while. Welcome. So this was not so. <laughs> meanwhile, so I said to him, I was like, look, my 72-year-old mother has not showered for two days because of this. And my daughter, I was boiling water in the kettle and bringing it upstairs and like ladling it onto her head to get the soap Very out. Biblical. Because she couldn't rinse her hair with no hot water. She like couldn't do any more time in the cold water. It's like, this seems to merit a slight refund perhaps. And he was like, you're totally right. I'm going to refund you 5%. And I was like, five percent. Like, and then he writes back. He says, "I've also called the municipality of Tel Aviv. Apparently, your block is having a problem, but that's not my fault." I was like, "Right, right, right." But when your apartment has a problem, that's and I was like, "Oh, this is the Israeli thing." I am this, so happy you actually is, had the experience. I was like, "Now you know." But with a German, if you, if not with made, an Israeli, with a German. Yeah, with who, a German. Yeah. So we're in. We're currently in a. We're doing alternative dispute resolution. We're we're um we're working things out. So that was the low point. Was the uh, was the Airbnb at Tel Aviv? I would say that was the high point. That was amazing. <laughs> it depends have, what water. And you have a clip for us uh, from you your like. from your meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to you want to hear? So at the at the oh no, the high and the high point was clearly not that. No matter how you slice it, it was the meetup in Tel Aviv, where a dozen unorthodox fans came out, and uh, we had drinks, and we had uh, we had meze, we had antipasti. And, uh, oh, you sprang for Meze? I didn't spring for anything. They all treated me. It was all on oh. Noah Stoffman. Brilliant listener Noah Stoffman picked up some of the tab. Uh, the sorority girls from the University of Florida picked up some of the tab. 
Should we play some? What are you What are you doing here in Israel? I am getting my master's degree in Holocaust studies. That sounds cheery. I'm living, loving, and eating lots of sabich. And you found yourself an Israeli man, right? I have. I found myself an Israeli sailor. He's rather strapping. And is, is, this, is this it? Are you are you done for? Oy vavoy, Mark, these questions. Are you my grandmother? Um, I noticed you didn't answer. <laughs> I, State your name. Uh, Gabi Ofnil. And where, where are you from originally? Silver Spring, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> Which of the three of us is your favorite, me, Liel, or Stephanie? It's a little awkward because you're standing in front of me right now. But by, I'm your favorite? By far, Stephanie is my girl. Oh, okay. What did you do in the Army? Uh, economic research. That's, that, sounds, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, well, you know, somebody's got to be a hero. Uh, I, I feel like I identify with all of you in different ways. Do you you're have my favorite now, like by virtue of like me being here tonight. And yeah, my, you're my favorite. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, well, well put. Do you still have your gun? No, no, I gave it back. Well, Leo makes it sound like everyone just keeps, like, they're just oiling their guns once a week for life. Sure. I mean, could you kill me right now? No. (laughs) I took took two hours of Krav Maga and, like, mostly sat by the side with the guys who were smoking. I mean, I'll just be honest. Like, I'm a big pussy. I think my children might grow up to be that as well. Like, if I move here and I want to feel confident that they can stay far away from any sort of combat. No. No. I actually asked somebody on the bus to, like, basic training. I was like, if I absolutely don't want to do combat... Well, can they still make me? They were like, yeah, 100%. I, I identify pretty well with Stephanie, and I really love her hair. It's true. Her hair is naturally, like, I'm in close proximity to it all the time, and it is, it's bouncy and shiny. Yeah, it's like and like hair a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm very jealous of it. We don't, you know, she's, I respect her as an intellect. I don't ask her questions about her product regimen or right. anything. But, um, but yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah, it is remarkable. It's, she's the envy of every other Jewish girl. <laughs> You have no idea what hair means. Uh, it's, it's Ashkenazi Jews. Um. Anyway, Mark, you have beautiful hair. You have beautiful Thank hair too, Mark. You. One day it's you too rich, can rich be and luscious. the envy of Jewish women worldwide. <laughs> <Everywhere>. <laughs> um, all right, little news of the Jews. Um, Great little YouTube clip of an airplane experiencing technical difficulties mid-flight. The Jews were flying to somewhere in Poland for the shrine of somebody or other. Um, and this when is an airplane filled with Orthodox Jews. Every Jew on it yep. looks to be Haredi. And they um, reacted by singing. What was the song? Planes going down. Planes going down. They sent out a mayday call. They lost a lot of of air. Literally losing altitude. What do you do when the plane is going down? The oxygen masks have dropped. I'm asking you. What would you do? Scream. Uh, Panic. I would do exactly what they did. Really? Which is Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. (laughs) Oy, 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 But they had some other songs. No, they were singing Anima Amim. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I believe. Yeah. What is that? And is there, that a- you know, it's like you see this video. First of all, everyone's filming it, which is amazing. Everyone is pretty calm. Everyone is just like reading yeah, their prayer so books, singing. And you're like, this is where I want to be in the event of an emergency landing. That's exactly right. They, they were like maybe going to die. And they were all just so calm and like ready. Ready if for, I ever have ready to be for in the situation, come. I hope I'm in a plane filled with like Chabadniks. It's like, guys, just take me, take me wherever you're going. Who are actually like <laughs> disappointed when the plane lands, and they're like, oh no, <laughs> we almost saw <laughs> eternity. Uh, damn it, got all those things we were promised. Oh wait, wrong, that was amazing. Was that they weren't, they didn't appear. I'm sure they were scared, right? But or some of them were. But the the vibe was. God, as, will, God will take care of as us. the as the religious Hebrew saying goes, Mishem Amin Lo Mefached. He who believes is never afraid. 
Do you do you have that kind of belief? A thousand percent. Really? Yeah. You just wouldn't be the, the the airplane could be pitching toward the ground. Listen, is it is it uh, is it under my control? <laughs> Yeah. No, but wouldn't you? Can I do anything? Wouldn't you at least? No. I sometimes think that even at the point in the descent where I'd accepted, okay, this is it, and and acceptance had seeped in, there would be a profound sadness, like, oh, my life was a good. I had a good thing going on Earth, right? And now on to the next. There's like another Say, plane of understanding that they seem to be on that no other plane would ever look like. Everyone would be screaming, crying, right. you making know why? phone calls. You like, know why, Stephanie? Because they read the fine print. <laughs> Of the contract of life. Be like, oh, we know where this is going. I mean, they read the contract at all. Yeah, they did. I should say, if you watch... We just signed the user agreement. I should say, if you watch the video, which Leo will put in the newsletter, no doubt, um, some of them looked a little bit... Some of them were looking around being like, really? We're going to say... Really? Like, some of them looked... We're going to sing that? What's the deal with the people... Some a little scared. (laughs) Videoing. Like, where is that going? Right. Right. Who's to the guys like, I know what I'll do. It'll be in the cloud. It'll, <laughs> it will literally be in the cloud. New street sign in London. It's a beware of Jews sign. It's one of the triangular signs made to appear like other danger or beware signs. But here it surrounds a silhouette of a um, of a Haredi guy with his hat and, and side locks. It was found in Stamford Hill, which has the largest Haredi population in Europe. Um, I thought it looked like Charlie Chaplin, actually. It My doesn't first really look, look like a, a Haredi yeah, guy. And I'm, there's also like an old woman in a different one that I think is also a joke. So it's like, beware of old women crossing, beware of Jews crossing. I, is, I didn't. This didn't strike me as super anti-Semitic. It's Caution, like, Jews ahead. Reduce speed to five miles per hour. Yield. Yield to the Zionist conspiracy. <laughs> um, Mel Gibson, uh, coiner of Liel's favorite term ever. Stephanie, say it. Not, not saying oh, it. come on. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it. Do I have it. to say it? No one has to the say one it. Who, Mel Gibson, who being arrested, once called the female arresting officer Sugar Tits. Which um, is my nickname for you ever since. I'm Sugar Tits? And how you appear in my contacts list you know, on my I, iPhone. And his dreams. How I appear yeah. in your slideshow. <laughs> in my I dreams. I, I think we've been exactly. doing this show for a little too long, guys. <laughs> He's apparently, Mel Gibson has apparently been donating to a Holocaust survivor charity, according to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The Survivor Mitzvah Project was started by Zane Busby, who is some sort of act- who's some sort of actress who, if you go to IMDb, she once directed <laughs> some Zane episodes. Busby, who's a character created by Mel Gibson <laughs> for Beyond Thunderdome? If you go on the cutting room floor, if you go to her webpage, she apparently once directed some episodes of The Golden Girls. Got tired of being a bit player in the sitcom directing scene and started a nonprofit that gives money to Holocaust survivors in Russia. She now. Um, has a, a gala every year, and apparently one of the guys who gave money to it is Mel Gibson. So and they he... won't say how much or for how long, but he definitely has been doing it. I love this idea that we're but like, it's, he's not giving to the right Holocaust charity. dollars. <laughs> what do you think his checks say? Like what his check design what is? Memo is? What's the memo? <laughs> Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. We would like to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter. This week, it's the the somewhat diminished law firm of Garrett Gregg, Kathy Rubenstein, Jeff Rice, and Sarah Toledano. My first thought about Garrett Gregg is... You mean Gerhard Gregg. (laughs) This guy with has three G's. this guy has three double consonants in his name. It's Garrett with two R's and two T's, and Greg with two G's. Some political scientist once did a study showing that people trust double consonants. Hence, the New Hampshire senator Judd Gregg. Like you win elections if you have a double. Oh, because the Greg has two G's at the end. Exactly. It like it looks solid. It looks like 
I don't know what this means for Oppenheimer. Does it matter where it's placed? Because at the end sounds really like Judd Gregg. That does yeah. sound really. I think the I think the end helps. Anyway, you can go find the study. But I thought Garrett Gregg. I trust whatever he says. This guy was Gershom uh, Galper, and he wanted to run for office in his 20s. They were like, they'll never trust you. And he changed his name to Garrett Gregg. No, that's not nice of you, Mark, because actually it's kind of a sad story. (laughs) You know the story, right? Okay, tell us the real story, Leo. So he was in a uh, multi-faith partnership with his gay life partner, Anil Dharma. They had a spiritual consultancy firm of Dharma and Gregg. This is a very specific joke about sitcoms from I the understand. 90s, I know which probably Greg. no one understands. It was on like TV Land, right? End of joke. Uh, to get the newsletter and <laughs> have us do this to your name, sign up at tabletmag.com and send an email telling us that you signed up. Or just send us the email saying, put me on your damn newsletter. Uh, it's unorthodox at tabletmag.com. While you are at it, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your fine free podcasts. Patrick Ruffini is a Republican pollster and one of the first digital strategists in American politics. He was first a part of President Bush's 2004 campaign and has been involved in Republican politics ever since then. Welcome, Patrick. It's great to be here. What's what's life been like for you since November 8th? What are you up to? Uh, what's this brave new world? Really inter- it's interesting because I think it's a new order in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, I think we are seeing a Republican Party that in some ways is trying to pursue a traditional, very traditional Republican agenda, repealing Obamacare, uh, deregulation. Um, But at the same time, we see this force coming from the White House, um, which is very, um, you know, focused on this ideology of nationalism um, that kind of does appeal, um, you know, more to the white working class. It's been interesting to see the tension and those uh, tensions play out. Um, in some cases, Trump has um, has surprised me, and in some cases, uh, you know, I think it's it's been surprising the extent to which he hasn't really um, tried to differentiate himself that much from Republicans in Congress just yet. Um, so the question is, will he? You know, is um, what he brings to the table purely stylistic in nature, or is it? Um, you know, is he going to actually change? the ideology of the Republican Party in meaningful ways. If you have the answer to this question, by the way, please let him know, because I think he <laughs> really wants an answer, too. So you, you've been thinking, I take it a lot, about what your profession means in the wake of this you know, political tsunami. So if, if you were hired right now to, to organize the re-election campaign or some other big kind of national-level campaign, what, 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 what kind of different strategy uh, would you advocate? What, what, is, what is campaigning uh, strategically uh, in a data-driven way look like after, after this, this election? Uh, people, the big misconception about data-driven campaigning is that we can very thinly slice the electorate and we uh, are, will be able, as a result, to deliver very highly targeted messages to, um, you know, narrow and narrower slices of the electorate. Many people said that this was sort of the, the strategy that Hillary Clinton had, um, that, you know, we are going to uh, just turn our voters out and we only need this very narrow sliver of the electorate to turn out. And if they do, um, we don't have to worry about states like Wisconsin. Um, that was sort of the theory. And I think that theory, that particular... The Russians version, made her do it in her defense. <laughs> exactly, right. But, you know, I think that uh, Donald Trump showed that big messages matter. And even having 
somebody who is a bit more of a blunt force instrument. Um, you know, even if he has some imperfections, even if some of the things he says aren't poll tested, actually resonates better with a lot of people than having a candidate who is purely, uh, you know, saying exactly what people want to hear. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, Trump understands this intuitively in a way that most politicians don't. Uh, I, have to, master of, I have to interrupt, yeah. though. I mean, there's a way in which we've sort of we're now talking about Trump with these. I, I'm I'm not going to say normalized him, but we've we're kind of we're kind of we elected him. We elected him. We're polishing. I forget the metaphors. We're we're, we're buffing the the, yeah. the coal. I mean, he's a terrible person, right. right? I mean, people, good people don't talk about women in those ways. Good people don't. Even if you agreed with his politics, right. I mean, you're a conservative, right? I mean, we have to have norms. Shouldn't there be a consensus even among people who want to work with him? that he he behaves abominably, that there's something really troubling about having him as a president, as a role model. I mean, shouldn't can't we always put at the fore of our discourse, OK, we have to work with him. But if any of our kids grow up to act like him, we'll be really ashamed. Uh, I think that I was I am and continue and have been very critical of him, uh, you know, certainly of the things he has said, um, uh, you know, on the on the campaign trail. I think certainly he acts very, um, you know, strange. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's uh, you know in, in both uh, in some ways in some ways that are puzzling in some ways that are that are disconcerting um, as a president right I mean you know tweeting at six a.m. tweeting conspiracy theories so certainly there are things that I you know personally don't approve of I struggle with the facts personally and you know, speaking personally that this is a still in many ways a Republican administration that is pursuing surprisingly traditional Republican policies in many ways, and frankly, those are policies that, you know, I'm supportive of. But I think many people who otherwise were um, troubled by his behavior still made a decision that he was better uh, than the alternatives. Um, We don't live in a perfect world, and we don't have perfect candidates. And um, so at some level, we have to recognize that as a fact, even if we don't approve of it. So after all of that sort of like linguistic dancing around, like, you know, what, what what Republicans sort of have to do now. What do you do when he says, you know, data's wrong, polls are stupid? Like, what do you do? Uh, I take that about as seriously as some of the, you know, as many of the other things uh, that he says. He, he certainly will say polls are right when they favor him, um, and he will say they are wrong when um, they show his approval rating declining. Um, I don't pay too much attention to that. That is uh, part of the course for him. But doesn't it like make you really angry that you're like, no, this is science. Like they, they, we're slicing this population. We're doing all this stuff. I think that there is science and then there are things people say uh, because they feel like they have to say them politically. Um, in, in, in his case, he probably believes it. Um, you know, I would certainly hope the folks around him um, who are well versed in the data are uh, more careful about how they view it. But do you think this is maybe making people more skeptical of um just like the numbers that they see, you know, they say, oh, this is from Fox. We can't trust this. Like, are there, do you think this is trickling down the same way, you know, distrust of media is sort of trickling down among Trump supporters? Well, I, I certainly think that the distrust in um, objective facts, I think, is a potential, uh, the idea that uh, com- having a common truth, um, uh, you know, uh, that the, se- the sense that we don't really have that anymore, uh, you know, the segmentation of the population into, uh, different camps. I think it's something that, you know, even though I worked with social media a lot over the years, it's been aided by social media. I think it's a very troubling trend. I think polling is, is just one narrow sliver of that. 
If you could make one moratorium, right, one thing that you say, okay, everyone in our profession, here is one thing that we absolutely mustn't do anymore. From a technical standpoint, what, what would you do? Would you ban political use of social media, of politicians <laughs> having personal accounts? Would you, would you ban certain kinds of polling? Would you ban certain kind of release of poll numbers as they do in several European countries on days before elections? What, what would be kind of your... How do we uh, reform and restore trust? You know, I, I certainly wouldn't say that you need to restrict the amount of information out there because all information is, is valuable. It's, it's just to what extent is it valuable? To what extent does it actually teach us anything? Uh, I think one troubling habit that people have is to cherry pick poll numbers to say, uh, all right, Gallup has Trump at 37%. I'm, I don't like Trump, then I'm going to cite Gallup's number today. Um, Rasmussen has Trump at 50%. I like Trump, and therefore I'm going to cite that number as, as, as the true number. I think that that is a very, uh, the, the sort of cherry-picking of data um, that I think happens uh, not by everyone, but it certainly happens uh, on, on both sides of the, of the aisle, is something that, um, you know, I, you know, particularly reading Twitter, I think is, is probably something I could do without. Patrick, if you ever run for office, you have the fat Jewish conservative vote uh, completely locked down. <laughs> if, if he ever gets his citizenship papers, that is. <laughs> yeah. If not, he'll tell his fat Jewish conservative friends to vote for you. Um, our listeners can find Patrick Ruffini on Twitter at, at Patrick Ruffini, R-U-F-F-I-N-I. Um, thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Patrick. Bye. Well, the one on the right was on the left, and the one in the middle was on the right, and the one on the left was in the middle, and the guy in the rear was a Methodist. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey, Unorthodox listeners, J. Crew. As part of an industry-wide push to get more Americans turned on to podcasts, we are asking all of you to tell a friend about a podcast you love. It could be us. It could be. We will, we will admit we, we wouldn't object if it were unorthodox. But whatever it is, think of the friend, tell them about it in real life or on social media, and use the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y pod. And listen, if you want extra credit, Record some audio of you showing your bubby how to hear a podcast. Like, what does it sound like when you teach somebody who doesn't know what a podcast is, what a podcast is? Send that audio to us. We will play it. I'm calling high. Our Jew of the Week this week is Sana Krasikov. Um, she's the author of The Patriots, a new, uh, new book out that um, spans... It's the story of one Russian Jewish family over three generations, back and forth from then the Soviet Union to the United States, then back to Russia. It's a, it's a wonderful book, um, and we're happy to have you here. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you for being here. Yeah. It's an amazing novel. Thank you so much. I love that book. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. it gets it, it speeds up as it it's long, but it starts speeding up as it goes. It's a lot, a lot, I, a lot know, of action. I, I thought it kind of sped up from from like page one. Oh, I thought it, it read, you know, you. it 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 just. Picked up steam. It was great. So just the, the backstory of this book a little bit. We have you know close friends with the family, and we would vacation with them on Cape Cod. And uh, you know he was like us, a Russian. He seemed a Russian Jewish immigrant of my parents' generation, but his parents, it turned out, were actually both Americans. So he was this um, Russian-born son of these exiled Americans who separately had gone to the Soviet Union in the 30s. There was there were kind of these enthusiasts, and then a couple of swinging years, and then the path back to them was closed. So he. They ended up getting sort of caught up in the purges after the war. He grew up in an orphanage and then didn't meet his mother again until he was a teenager. So the first scene in the book where he's standing on this, um, you know, train platform and his mother comes back and, for the, and you know, his uh, orphanage director introduces them. He hears her thick American accent for the first time. Like he's edited that out as a child. That came right uh, from life. I mean, that was his story. And then kind of what what her story was, what his was, and then it just evolved into this three-generational novel. I'm just curious, what is, what is speaking Russian with a thick American accent sound like? Can you do I, that? You know, I, yeah, let me a try that. Ты хочешь покушать? That sounds <laughs> amazing. That's like, could I supersize that, please? <laughs> so your, your book came out in January, yeah. a few days after the inauguration. Um, it obviously is about Russia. So yeah. since then, there's been, you know, to say the least, a little renewed interest in Russia. Do you sure has. do yeah. you feel like 
watching Trump. So you grew up, you're from, you were born in Ukraine, grew yeah. up in Georgia, spent time in Africa, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And to what? be clear, that's Soviet Socialist Republic Georgia. Not that's like right. good old Southern Georgia. Although I got to tell you, my passport is wrong because for some reason, nobody seems to get that. So I actually put, okay, my birth certificate actually says Georgia because for some reason, my mom like forgot to give me one in Ukraine and the Georgians refused to put Ukraine on it. So it's my birth certificate says Georgia. So when I got a passport... I said Georgia, Republic of, and they they said Georgia, USA is my birthplace. So which is awesome because like it actually gives me more, almost more rights. So you can <laughs> literally <laughs> fake your ba- birth certificate. Right. You're an anchor baby, basically. And I hope Trump doesn't find out. So when you watch Trump as yeah. something of, you know, an outsider to America, I mean, you've lived here obviously yeah, yeah. a while, but what, what does it look like to you? Well, uh, you know, this is this, there's like a long answer here because um, – you know, you guys asked me that in the email, and, and then I ended up writing, like, a five-page response to it. Um, and, well, there's there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the, the Russian community overwhelmingly supports Trump. I mean, people know that. I don't know. Do people know that? People, people kind of know Yeah, that, they know yeah. that. I mean, So do the Israelis, mi- I learned, when I was in Israel. So the Israelis <laughs> it's a mixed bag. You know, people have been pointing out, a, like, how the book is timely, and there's a lot of parallels. And, and there are a, a lot of parallels. Maybe not – maybe the parallels that I see aren't the same ones that – like courtesy, because in some ways the book is like a history of this backdoor collusion between the two countries. Like right. this, this um, my husband described it as a uh, like collusion under the cover of enmity, right? Because you know, even in the '30s, we were lambasting the Red Menace, but and behind the scenes, we there were you know all of Russia's industrialization equipment, its factories, everything was coming from um, Germany or the United States, most of the United States. So like. Uh, you know, places like Gary, Indiana and Cleveland, they were coming over and buying all our technology. And and those deals involved politicians and they involved um, business people and like people, you know, just the way that we kind of have backdoor collusions now. And at the same time, you had the common turn meddling with American democracy. So like w- what seems like news today isn't necessarily right. a new thing. And I think I've seen actually a lot more weird parallels in the past few weeks, more than after the inauguration. Like what? So... You know, part of the storyline is Julian, who's the son, right, the main character. He goes to Moscow on a regular basis because he um, works in the oil industry. And um, sorry. And how do you describe the oil industry? Like the way in which they're like the ultimate peacekeeper between or there's some oh, great yeah, right that it's done more for the cause of um kind of friendship and cooperation between our two great nations than right. years of non-proliferation treaties so you know it's the scene that everybody who's been to russia has experienced which is that like after a few drinks the russians inevitably start telling you that all of your institutions are phony right so they say oh you're military they're not you know they're they they torture all the time and you know it don't pretend you don't your state department it's all fake and your your judges are corrupt and you have it's all fake news. It's all fake it's news. All and they, lie. they start they start telling us that us that about America. Yeah, they like, like exert. You think you're so great, but let me tell you. Right, right. They exert so much enthusiasm by do you like telling Russian us accents. Everything. By the way, we're I do. I think they're they're, they're authentic. They're good. They're American Russian accents. <laughs> but here was the so sometimes you just take a scene wholesale, right, and you put it into your work, but so, and you don't really unpack it until months or years later, or like the world changes so much that suddenly it makes new sense. But the part of this scene was that so this friend of mine was like so sick of hearing this finally, and he said, "Well, I can just as easily accuse you guys, the Kremlin, of." orchestrating those terrorist attacks, you know, they, uh, of build, mm-hmm. blowing up those buildings in Moscow so that you could justify re-entering Chechnya, right? And his boss is like, thinks, oh my God, he's going to really offend these people. It's going to be, it's going to be bad. But they like look at him with open arms and say, yes, of Brother! course we did it. Of course we did it. And 
I was like, well, no, this is interesting, right? So the cynicism isn't just about all their institutions. They're actually suggesting, right, that their all-powerful president is behind a terror attack, right, against his own people. So, and these people are working for a state-owned oil company, and they're publicly saying this, right? So what's going on here? Like, and yet it makes them no less patriotic. They're all Putin loyalists who are saying this in public. And it made no sense to me, right? This detail, it just didn't fit. But I put it in anyway, because the detail that never fits is usually the detail that's correct. So, you know, I started thinking about it in light of the fact that Bannon now called the the press the enemy of the people. And then, um, and then you know, Trump is attacking Je- you know, Janet Yellen and the, and the State Department's being crippled and everything, right? And I thought, well, you know, the thing is, but the mistake we make about thinking about autocrats is we think we, they want the the people to think that they're like perfect and airbrushed. And we point to these shirtless pictures of Putin like, oh, he's this par- paradigm of manhood. But that that's a strategy for only one portion of the population, kind of the sentimental hordes. But Russians really pride themselves on their cynicism. And weirdly enough... If you think that Putin may have, not did, but may have orchestrated an act of terror, then um, what you're saying is there's no independent center of power in the army, say, where there's a set of ethics that would allow an act like that to be impossible. There's no one there in charge safeguarding those ethics because everyone's subordinate to the center. Everyone's subordinate to the state. So in a weird way, what you're saying is no one's in charge except for Putin. He may or may not have done it. But no one independently would prevent that from happening. And that's a good and, thing. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. That is weirdly enough a perverse form of propaganda. I totally this understand gets, that. This gets to my question. I was um, I was just in Israel, as we, we were talking about the, on the show earlier, and I was talking to a guy who's a likely L, you know, family's been in Israel for a very long time. And he was talking about how the Russians have changed, how the, the massive Russian immigration has changed things. And one of the things he said is, and this is him talking, he said, well, you know, they are different. Like, they actually don't think democracy, they, they have no sentimentality about democracy as being the best possible anything. He said they really like deep in their soul, deep in their soul, they like they like a strong leader. They like an autocracy. They like a sort of strong man. It's something they kind of crave. They revere it. They might see the problems with it, but they kind of just, they have an affection for it. Um, I'm very suspicious of kind of generalizations about the soul of a people, right? Yeah, right. But is there some truth to that? I mean, is there something in the Russian, I don't know. Yeah. I don't mean to make it sound genetic, but like in the culture that says like, yeah, like one tough, strong leader, whether it's a czar or a head of the CP is, you know? Well, I mean, talking about Russians in Russia or Russian Americans? Well, I guess both. I mean, I was asked about Russians in Russia because he was saying they take it into their diaspora also. Yeah. Well, I think think that is the truth. I don't think it's the complete, I I don't think it's a complete truth for American Russians. I mean, I, I, they, there is more of a tolerance for autocratic style, uh, strongman styles of leadership for sure. But I think, um, the reason that someone like Trump had more popularity among Russian Jews than American Jews has to do with kind of more complex factors. Um, I mean, Jews, Russian Jews are overwhelmingly Republican, but they're not like Republican in the kind of social sense, right? They're, I think... Um, they're liberty Republicans. Yeah, I mean, they value freedom over equality. The word equality, and I got to say... I'm I'm kind of um, conditioned into this as well. I mean, I'm a liberal with a with a serious libertarian streak. Like when I hear about the value of equality being elevated over the value of freedom, like I I bristle at that. But Putin seems to me the opposite. Right, Putin is for sure. For sure, I don't, I don't imagine even sure. It's like you're all equal under Putin, but you're not really that free. Well, you're sense. not free. You're not free. You're but free I think... to admire Putin in whatever way you want, <laughs> shirtless I mean on a like, horse. What I mean is, okay, so you know, people before the election, I was saying to my friends, you know, this the political 
political correctness that people are talking about, like that could lose a Democrat's election. People thought it was a joke because it was like, oh, you know, you're just being a nice guy. It's about being sensitive. But this kind of mandatory inclusiveness feels so Soviet to Russian Jews. I mean, all of this, like, um, you know, let's unite all of these different kind of, uh, whether it's an ethnic group or or, or, or uh, sexual orientation or whatever, uh, against kind of the patriarchy or like the cis-gendered white male or whatever. Like, that's just basically cultural marxism i mean if you just take the masses and instead of workers unite you just it's it's this it's you know it's the marcusian school it's just been converted into kind of the language of activism the language of academia and it's just spread and people russian jews hate it Sana, this and is why i, I wish it. this is why i wish that radio could convey the width and depth of my smile right now because it's <laughs> very so big do we just need to get more cynical is that how we deal with trump like do america i mean americans are not as cynical people jews i think are mm. but do we just need to like Not Jews raised in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm not a political strategist, but I do think like, I do think, um, you know, there, there, there was like five minutes of soul searching after the election about what the left could do to kind of win back, and then we just double down, kind of on yeah. on the like it's all they're and all racist and sexist, literally Nazis. Yeah, I, I just yeah. I think. You know, it's 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 framing. People are talking different languages. They're literally talking different languages. You know, everything's become. And I think that's the other thing. Like in when I was writing this book, I mean, all language forced you to take a side there. And and there's this moment where he's looking through her archives and it's it's everything is like if you heard this conversation, then you were complicit in it. There's no middle ground because actually in this in Russian Orthodoxy, unlike Catholicism, there's no purgatory everything is either heaven or hell and you're either guilty or or you've you know and you can never really repent right you're either blameless or you're totally guilty and you know in in the, in the western world it evolved from kind of there was a space of neutrality there was a purgatory but i think we're increasingly in a political world where like it's either pro choice or pro life i mean all the framing is with us or against us and more and more and more and like i don't know how that's sustainable because civil society has to exist in a kind of people have to be able to talk on a, in a middle ground somewhere all right i, I want to get a little yeah. bit back to the book cuz the book is masterful and people need to read it it's it's this really complicated and fascinating intergenerational relationship that pivots around various attitudes toward kind of identity based on where you were born where you immigrated to when and why uh, now you have a, nowhere near as dramatic a story mm-hmm. but but you are also um, someone who is who's immigrated, whose parents have immigrated, who now has children who are American born, right? Uh, one or of them Ken- Kenyan, Kenyan born. born. One, Kenyan my born. More or less Kenyan American uh, yeah. <laughs> people. Don't tell that to anyone if she ever becomes president. Just no, she was born God in Hawaii. She can't be run for and president. It will be fine. <laughs> um, how how have your rela- first of all, what's it like to kind of juggle the Americanness of kids and and the Russianness of parents uh, in your own life, and how, how does that influence writing these characters? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, my parents have changed a lot. And, um, well, you know... Oh. They're American now. Yeah, they. well, they're more American now. Um, they're more chill than I am in some ways now. But, you know, I, my, I, my, we, since we moved, um, I put my son into the socialization class. It's <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> not called school. Welcome to America. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know... Um, 
at first she was like skeptical. Now she's totally on board. But it was all about like when we, you know, when we play a game, we also play the friendship game. And you can win the game and lose the friendship game, or you can like lose the game and win the friendship game. And she's like, oh, he's learning the hypocrisy of American life. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, no, you can't say that around him. He has to like take oh, this seriously. Mom. But, I love mom. But then my sister, right? She's she's so into like, you know, she really believes in psychotherapy and she's a doctor and she believes in all this kind of social learning. And uh, she saw there was this um, poster of like um, super flex man and his super villains. Have you heard of this? It's like God, like, no. like rock man, you get stuck in, in an idea or like. Peter repeater if you repeat something many times. And this is a nursery school thing. It's like, is... it's like a kindergarten thing, but okay. like because um, you know he had there was there, he was in a very culturally different environment in Kenya. And also, I think I think he needs some like pragmatic language help. Um, he's like me. I think he's like a little OCD. But um, no, I mean he's not diagnosed as that. I just see it in myself and him. Um, but then my sister was like, "This is like, the coolest poster." So she and my mom were like just like pouring over it, and we're like, "Oh, if, any, if someone had taught us that when we were young, like so." Yeah, I mean, I think there is something about, like, the American... She, and then she started remembering all these things, like, when she came and the whole, like, you know, just not being able to read the clues, the social rules. And, like, you know, when Americans smiles, it, they don't, it doesn't mean they actually care about you. Not at all. <laughs> it means nothing. It means, right. And, but it takes a while to It means would you like learn. fries with that. Mm-hmm. Right. It means, it means get out of the way. Sorry. Yeah, because she would, like, take her co-worker's hand as they walked to lunch together. And her friend's like, you can't do that here. Right. So no actual affection, <laughs> right? Um, so I don't know. I guess I guess it's just oh, now that I've, I have kids, we're kind of going through all that stuff again. So what is the most foreign thing about you? What is the one thing that you look inside uh, your soul? Mm-hmm. You know, just before you fall asleep, be like, oh my god, I'm, I'm so Russian. I'm so Ukrainian. Way. Yeah. Um, you must have something, right? Yeah. No, I don't know if it's like my Russianness or or just me. I think I'm just really a contrarian. Like I um. Like, if everyone is agreeing on something, I will just inevitably yeah. disagree. Like, I just have to, you know. Just for, for fun's sake. Be like, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm always, like, that. the provocateur, which is why I, like. Uh, That's why you wrote a great could, novel. Oh, thank oh, you. Takes that. Um, I think that's it. I think. But I'm I'm not, like, as bad as some Russians. I mean, they just love to just. They're just, like, cruising for a fight all the time. And, like, that kind of. I think I learned, like, with my husband, like. Sometimes you want to get your ideas tested, so you just say something provocative, and then like you start an argument. And Americans don't like that; they're like, you know, they want you to be more sensitive to their their feelings and and like not be a Peter repeater, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sana, thank you so much for coming in. Um, our listeners can buy the Patriots um, at any any bookstore they they fancy, E Taylor, anywhere. It's about a great football team from New England. <laughs> Just keeps on winning. <laughs> in the gulag. Just in the gulag. <laughs> Hey, it's your last reminder. You could be listening in time to go to Golem's fake Catskill Styles Jewish Wedding. Golem is that band that does um, our intro and outro and, and bumper music. They're an amazing 
punk, klezmer, neo, juby uh, band out of Brooklyn. And they're doing this fake Catskill Styles wedding with like a hoopah and drag and klezmer and all this stuff. It's March 23rd at Drum in New York City on the island of Manhattan. Go to DrumNYC.com for more info. And when you go there and you get wasted and you throw yourself on the stage and you crowd surf, uh, tell them that you heard them first on Unorthodox. Some Mazel Tovs of the week, Liel? My Mazel Tov goes out to my dear friend uh, and a very, very smart person, Jamie Kerchick, who was a guest on the show and shall be again very soon, uh, who had a book come out this week. Uh, It's called The End of Europe. Uh, The title is self-explanatory. Jamie's insights are absolutely necessary. And if you want to understand what the fuck is wrong with this decrepit dying continent, uh, read Jamie Kerchick. Essential reading. I'm sure it's a great book, and the excerpts that we've the excerpt we ran from it in tablet was amazing. But you've Mazel Tov Jamie like four times on the show. I love Jamie. You love Jamie. What's wrong with that? You, there's a real like. Yeah. You guys are the successor act Jamie, to, Dar- to Darman Greg. Jamie's amazing. <laughs> Jamie's the consultancy of Leibowitz and Kerchik. What do they sell? Truth to power. What do they sell? What does Leibowitz and Kerchik do for you? Freedom, <laughs> liberty, and also like happiness. typewriters, <laughs> right, exactly, and pipes, and, and and they'll plumb your plumbing, Stephanie. My Molotov is to my friend Greg, who just started working at Harry's as one of their in-house counsels. And now we get to, like, I get to think about him every week. The cycle of world domination is complete. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yep. uh, my Mazel Tov is uh, to my daughter, Ellie, who won the Pi Day contest at school. <gasps> she, she won! She wow. memorized, as a, as a third grader, she beat the, so she had to win her classroom by memorizing. She like had 150 digits of pi or something. Then she went to the school competition. She had a few more days to memorize more where all the classroom champions were. And, and she defeated people from as high up as eighth grade. And I don't know, it was 185 digits or something like that. But watching this little eight-year-old, this little just pocket change of a person with her glasses and her long hair look up at you and just reel off almost 200 digits of pi is extraordinary. But oh, it was, I'm sorry, but no no adult is sitting there and actually checking 185 spots. So really, all you got to do is a kid. Just reel like, off numbers. 3.14, yeah. 226, 328467812. I was so cares? amazed because this is something, it's just hard work, right? Memorization is just pure hard work. You just got to right. want it. For and literally this is no reason. For right. no reward Absolutely at all. Absolutely no reason. Just hard work. But it was just, it was a beautiful, and she was really proud of herself and we were really proud of her. Mazel tov. And thank you. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, or in France, Tablet, on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision this week by the high, high Rav Jeffrey Rashba of Jerusalem. It was great seeing you at the Purim party. Kosher slaughtering by Marcel, the Airbnb douche canoe of Tel Aviv. Find Tablet Magazine on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem, and we record in Argo Studios, which has just been subpoenaed to testify before a special house subcommittee. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.